Although it was upon the nation's first early rail hubs, and now home to one of the nation's largest public transit systems, the Philadelphia transportation system is one that many people are not familiar with. However, had the network reached its full growth potential, we would be telling a very different story. Did you know that Philadelphia's system could have been much bigger than it is today? For beneath the busy streets, there now sit countless abandoned subway lines that remain tragically unrealized as mere shells of what could have been. Today, we discover the lost lines and ghost stations of Philadelphia's transportation network. I'm your host, Ryan Sokash, and you're watching It's History. Now, the tale of Philadelphia's forgotten subway lines is a fascinating one, and I'd like to thank our History Council and History Preservationist producers for making this episode possible. If you'd like to get on the team, click that join button. And now, into the story of Philadelphia's forgotten subway. Let's set the framework for those lost lines by first taking a brief look at the history of public transit in Philadelphia. The late 19th century was an incredibly transformative time for not only Philadelphia, but transportation across the country. In the years building up to the Industrial Revolution and at its peak, there came an ever-increasing demand for new forms of travel. Philadelphia was no exception. Transitioning out of the fixed route ferries that ran between Philly and Camden in 1688 to rail lines that ran gradually, expanding passenger rail throughout the height of the 19th century. And for those who were able to afford it, the invention of the omnibus service that ran from Philadelphia to its immediate suburbs marked a new era of efficient travel starting in 1831. Commuter trains were quick to follow their lead, making their way to the Philadelphia, Germantown, and Norristown Railroad. This new development now made it possible for people to work further outside of the city in places such as East Falls, Chestnut Hill, and Montgomery County. After Philadelphia was politically consolidated in 1854, streetcars were at the forefront of public transportation, bringing the city's development to new heights. On January the 20th, 1858, the Frankfurt and Southwark Philadelphia City Passenger Rail Company began operating the region's very first streetcars. These streetcars were larger, faster, and all around able to turn more profit than their predecessors by servicing even more areas and extending the reach of the transportation network even farther than the omnibus had. In fact, the horse-drawn transportation system in Philadelphia was so efficient for its time that the Philadelphia Encyclopedia states, Philadelphia could justly claim one of the finest transportation systems in the country by the time of the nation's centennial exhibition in 1876. These streetcars were not only major methods of transportation in Philadelphia at the time, but steam-hauled commuter trains were also on the rise. As previously mentioned, these commuter trains served the region as a whole, and as the name suggests, opened up far more opportunities for Philadelphians who needed to commute to areas that were further away. It is also important to note that it wasn't until 1893 when the three main rail systems in Philadelphia all relocated to the center city and made their rail facilities much more accessible that the commuter train gained popularity with the middle class. 
Initially, most of these streetcars and railroad companies were run by smaller, specialized organizations that ran a small number of routes. Following the Civil War, the intensely competitive atmosphere between railroads that ran long distance eventually brought about the consolidation that quickly spread across the nation's railway industry. This, coupled with similar mergers happening in the streetcar industry, led to a total transformation. Instead of multiple rival companies competing, the three main companies, the Philadelphia Traction Company, People's Traction Company, and the Electric Traction Company, all of which supplied power to existing transportation lines, merged into the Union Traction Company in 1895. This new company was later absorbed into Philadelphia's Rapid Transportation Company, PRT, in 1902, leading to a monopoly on public transportation. This monopoly was held by both PRT and two railroad systems that you might recognize today, the Pennsylvania Railroad and the Philadelphia and Reading. They collectively provided the vast majority of passenger transportation throughout the region, from the Jersey Shore to Harrisburg. Even so, the Philadelphia system was far from done changing. The late 1800s would see a brief and unsuccessful attempt to popularize cable cars, followed by electric trolleys and streetcars. In the year 1901, Philadelphia finally approved a rapid transit ordinance to allow both subway and elevated lines. This ordinance was approved to solve the growing transportation crisis of the 1900s. This crisis stemmed from the growing demand for high-speed inexpensive mass transportation to support not only commuting, but recreational activities such as shopping. Other new developments, most importantly the rise of the working class wages and the lowering of the transportation fare, made the trolleys and subways more accessible than ever. However, there was still an overarching issue. While the subways and trolleys were more accessible to the working class than they had been before, the services began to deteriorate and strikes became more frequent. This led to a government consensus that public transportation from then on would need far more regulation and planning. So now that we have the framework, let's quickly talk about Philadelphia's very first rapid transit line. Initially, the Market Street elevated line was off to a rocky start. The PRT had a lot of trouble fundraising due to lingering debt from previous projects. But nonetheless, construction of the Market Street elevated subway line began with groundbreaking in 1903. It was carried out in six phases, including the construction of a bridge to carry it over the Skikil River, construction of the four-track subway under Market Street from the Skikil River to City Hall, and construction of a two-track subway from City Hall under Market Street to an outlet at Fort and Arch Street. After the western part of the subway was opened for use in 1905, it was greeted with much acclaim as the first Philadelphian rapid transit line that was both affordable and fast. The city was eventually given partial oversight of the PRT and with it, partial oversight of the Market Street elevated line. By the fall of 1908, the Market Street elevated line was fully operational with extensions. For example, it was able to run from 69th Street to Delaware Avenue in less than 30 minutes. In total, including road and equipment expenditures, the Market Street and elevated route 
came to about $23,072,114. That's around $664 million in 2020. Following the completion of the Market Street Elevated Line, the city would take on a far more prominent role in rapid transit planning and funding until the late 1960s. And the Market Street Line would see extensions and later reconstruction. In 1913, Philadelphia's Transit Commissioner A. Merritt Taylor published a map of the planned future rapid transit line in a copy of the City of Philadelphia's annual report. This plan, aptly called the Taylor Plan, contained many routes that Philadelphians today may recognize, such as the Broad Street Line, BSL. In addition to these routes, the map also held Taylor's ambitious plans for the future, including lines that reached as far as Roxborough and Overbrook, as well as extensions to Chestnut Hill. There were also major branches that Taylor planned for, such as a divide on the north end of the Broad Street line that was meant to split off to Onlay and Rising Sun. Taylor believed that building the full system as quickly as possible would further spur and support development throughout the city. Philly Kerb also noted that at that time, the booming population in Center City was putting considerable strain on the transportation available at the time due to congestion. Building more subway lines would help relieve much of the congestion by giving people in Center City a chance to spread out and move to the southwest and northern parts of Philadelphia. Thanks to the opportunity to commute, this also ensured that those who moved out of Center City would still still have access to the bustling area. Sadly, a large number of Taylor's approved plans failed to come to fruition and were set aside after politicians pushed Taylor out of his position, though they were far from the only thing that caused his plans to fall into obscurity. World War I loomed overhead, causing construction costs to increase considerably until it was no longer financially feasible to spend such a large sum of money on multiple subway lines projected all at once. And yet, all these years later, many who know the story lament at just how well these lines would have served the city, well beyond what we have today. And although these original plans for the Philadelphia subway system have largely been lost to time, there are many remnants. So now let's have a look at what's been left behind. One of the best-known remnants is the Roosevelt Boulevard subway. Originally proposed in 1913, this lost subway is nothing if not resilient. Titled by some as the subway that refuses to die, there have been two attempts to build this subway, one of which, built in 1967 by Sears and Roebuck, costing around $1 million, is still rumored to exist. Originally intended to be a massive transit terminal between Center City and Northeast Philadelphia, politics and economics both kept the Broad Street line from extending far enough and the project was sealed off and laid to rest. Though the Sears building was later imploded, some have suggested that the subway tunnels still exist underground. If this is true, then it is truly one of the most striking examples of a ghost subway line, remaining dark and derelict after decades. Another interesting remnant is the lost Center City Loop subway. Located at 1300 Arch Street, the original expansion was planned for the Broad Street trunk line to turn into a large loop when it reached Center City. It would have made a large delivery loop that ran by Arch Street 
8th Street and Locust Street before looping back around to Broad Street. Construction of the loop began in the early 1900s and a series of short tunnels were dug beneath 1300 Arch Street and Locust Street. However, these tunnels were ultimately abandoned after work was halted due to a lack of funds. Now, the Locust Street Tunnel is actually still in use today after it was widened, but the Arch Street Tunnel remains closed off to the public and empty. The Henry Avenue Bridge was completed in 1932 after 20 years of proposals. It is a single-span, two-ribboned arch bridge made of reinforced concrete. Though it has carried vehicle traffic ever since its opening, its purpose now is far different from its original intent. Originally, the Henry Avenue Bridge was built to carry a rapid transit line between the road deck that would connect Roxborough and Germantown to Philadelphia. Even today, we still don't know why the rapid transit line was not constructed. Its tunnels today instead abandoned to time as a shell of what could have been. The Darby elevated subway line was another line that was never created from the plan. It would have run from Darby through Center City and finally to Camden. There are also many lost extensions to the original plans. One example being the Oak Lane extension, a later addition to the original subway plan proposed due to the growth of the neighborhoods north of Logan, which are not so abandoned after all. It is now used as a turnaround for the Ridge Spur trains. Last but not least, there is also the Passonk Spur located between the Tasker Morris and Snyder stations. If you take a train towards the stadium on Broad Street, you might feel the train make a slight jog to the right as it pulls out of the Tasker Morris station. This slight jog is where the Passonk Spur was meant to branch off from the Broadway street trunk, though it was added as a substitute for the Woodland Avenue elevated rail proposed in 1912. It met the same fate, though it is still visible today. If you look out the window on the right side of the southbound train, you can see an empty space just before entering the Snyder Station. This empty space is where the inbound track was meant to join the main stem just after passing under it. When it comes to Philadelphia's transport network, we probably can't expect and shouldn't expect the same degree of visions of grandeur that were once held in the past. The subway still faces many challenges. It was especially hit hard by the pandemic, causing a devastating plummet in ridership. And even before the pandemic, ridership had been decreasing steadily over the past years due to complaints about late trains, cleanliness, and safety concerns. Even so, a romantic might claim that Taylor's spirit is still within. According to Greater PRT, mass transit along Roosevelt Boulevard is still proposed by SEPTA and other planning organizations. Not only this, but the concept of transforming the Chestnut Hill Western Regional Rail into mass transit that connects the Broad Street subway is also discussed here and there. And in 2018, SEPTA received a federal grant and planned a subway improvement project worth $37 million. And although that amount probably won't go too far in the grand scheme of things, I'd also look at the system from another angle. Part of the charisma of Philadelphia is its urban decay, its oldness, its spirit. I feel this best in areas that have been neglected. It might not be comfortable for the residents. I respect and recognize that. However, if we take it as it is, I think that it is very much a part of what makes Philadelphia beautiful and mysterious. 
And this is just the tip of the iceberg. We also did a video about Philadelphia's abandoned concourse tunnels. So check that out. Don't forget to subscribe and join our History Council if you'd like to have a say in what video we do next. This is Ryan Sokash signing off.